Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scheritzma. We've done some pretty deep dives in the first 10 episodes, and we've taken over an hour in almost every one of them. But that's because three of them were directed by Hitchcock, isn't it? And then we had Joseph Cotton and Peter Lawford and Pat Hitchcock starring in three of them, right? And we had storylines with long histories that I had to lay out, didn't we? But now, this episode has none of those things, although some of the actors are more recognizable than you think. So does that mean we will be spared the deep dive? Will this podcast clock in at less than an hour? I don't know. Let's find out. Now, I have seen all of the first season episodes before, but that doesn't mean I remember them. Some like Breakdown and Revenge, have stuck with me for years. But some, like this one, were a big blank. You would think that the ones I didn't remember would be the ones that aren't very good, wouldn't you? But at least in this case, that isn't so. But what did happen is that not remembering this one allowed me to watch it completely fresh, and it hit me right between the eyes. So let's get started. Here's Hitch holding a noose. Oh, good evening. I was... uh just constructing a mobile for my living room. They tell me the four in hand is becoming less popular these days. I like it, though. I'm just old-fashioned, I guess. But so much for fine art. This evening, we have another in our series of plays designed especially for insomniacs. Actually, our stories don't cure you of insomnia, but they do take your mind off your problem by stimulating your imagination and giving you something to think about as you lie there in the dark. Tonight's story will follow after we give this wakefulness test. So here's Guilty Witness, first broadcast on December 11th, 1955, starring Judith Evelyn, Kathleen McGuire, and Joseph Mantell. Teleplay by Robert C. Dennis, based on a story by Morris Hirschman, directed by Robert Stevens. We should be fairly familiar with Robert C. Dennis and Robert Stevens by now. This is the third episode for both of them. Robert C. Dennis's first episode was episode four, Don't Come Back Alive. Robert Stevens' first episode was episode two, Premonition. And the second episode for both of them was episode eight, Our Cook's a Treasure. So we really don't need to go through their bios anymore, and we'll see them plenty more throughout the series. Robert C. Dennis contributes 30 teleplays in all, His next one being episode 17, The Older Sister. Robert Stevens directs 49 episodes total. In fact, he directs The Older Sister, but he has two other episodes before that. His next being The Cheney Vase, episode 13. You may recall from Our Cook's a Treasure that Robert Stevens is fond of placing objects large in the foreground. He does the same thing here again, One shot in particular, the one with the baby carriage by the phone, becomes very important later on. And by the way, just to go back to Hitchcock's intro for a moment, you may be wondering what he meant by, They tell me the four in hand is becoming less popular these days. I like it, though. The four in hand is a method of tying a necktie. And seeing as Hitch is holding a noose, it makes that comment particularly macabre. So let's begin. Our opening establishing shot is outside... We see a small store 
It has an awning. On the awning, it says groceries. There are vegetables and fruit out there and a scale. Stanley Crane, played by Joe Mantell, comes out of his store onto the sidewalk. Good morning, Mrs. Schultz. Oh, good morning, Mr. Santini. Good morning. How are you this morning? Uh, that's 29 cents. Well, how do you like the heat, Mr. Santini? I think maybe heat melted me down a little. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mrs. Santini. Come again. Bye. I will. Oh, Mr. Verber. Did the baby get over the colic? Oh, yes. Uh, baby's fine now. Did his crying bother you? No, no. Babies have to cry. Oh, Mrs. Levitsky. How are you this morning? Fine. How's the daughter? Wonderful. Oh, such girl. Uh, Mr. Crane, have you got any more of this nice salami? Oh, I think so. After the establishing shot, the camera cuts to a close-up shot of Stanley as he joins Mrs. Santini, and then it's one long, continuous shot as people come and go around Stanley. Mr. Verber comes through. Mrs. Glavitsky shows up. It's all one long shot until they go inside. Very nicely done. And during that one long shot, we learn a number of different things. First of all, we learn that the man that the camera is following is probably our main character and that he owns a small neighborhood grocery store, likely in New York, though we haven't been told that yet. Then we learn that it's hot, it's summer, and the heat is melting people down. Then we learn, for what it's worth, that things are cheap in 1955. Mrs. Santini buys what looks like five apples for 29 cents. Not bad. In his brief conversation with Mr. Verber, we learn that Stanley is a pretty good guy because clearly there's a baby with colic that lives somewhere nearby him. And what does he say when Mr. Verber asks if the baby has bothered him? No, no, babies have to cry. Now, granted, as Stanley tells us more than once in the episode, he needs to keep good relations with his customers in the neighborhood. But even so, you can tell by that that he's level-headed and he's just a good guy. Another thing we learn is that Mrs. Glavitsky's daughter is wonderful. Such a girl. All of that in one scene with one continuous shot. Oh, and don't worry about Mrs. Schultz, whom Stanley greets at the very beginning of that scene. She's just there to emphasize that Stanley knows the neighborhood, and she does not appear again. Now, we get a camera cut to take us to the inside of the grocery store, but then we get another continuous shot. Stanley has an assistant named Harold, who has no lines, and who isn't mentioned in any of the credits that I've seen. And Stanley asks him to get the salami for Mrs. Glavitsky. They both move out of the frame, and then Mrs. Verber comes into the frame. She has a bruise on her right cheek. And once we've seen her bruise, the shot cuts again. And that cut brings Stanley into the picture so that he can see the bruise, too. That's an awful nasty bruise. It's nothing Tripped over one of the kids' toys. They're always lying about. Mm. Did you get that? She tripped over the kids' toys. They're always lying about. It's a little slurred. But then again, it's really hot. And she has a bruise on her cheek that we're pretty certain did not come from tripping over the kids' toys. Stanley, however, lets it go. The camera stays on Mrs. Verber, pans along with her as she exits, and Stanley's wife, Dorothy, comes in. Morning, Mrs. Verber. Mrs. Crane. And after greeting Mrs. Crane, Mrs. Verber turns and gives Stanley a look. The camera follows Dorothy into a two-shot with Stanley. Did you see that bruise on her face? I knew they had another fight last night. She said she tripped and fell. Well, you can believe that if you want to, but I think he hit her. I saw Verber walking down the street. 
He looked kind of jumpy. The camera pulls back again and moves a little bit to include Mrs. Glavetsky, who now has her salami. While she buys that salami, Dorothy is in the foreground, sort of like those objects that Robert Stevens puts in the foreground. We pay attention to her and not the transaction between Stanley and Mrs. Glavetsky. She pulls a loaf of bread off the shelf and sort of toys with it. But there's a look on her face that is more important than the bread or the purchase of the salami. It is an expression that's both thoughtful and troubled. As Mrs. Glavetsky leaves, the camera swings around to include Dorothy and Stanley in a two-shot side-by-side. As Dorothy says, Do you think he plays around? Verba? Well, everybody says he does. I don't know why he just doesn't move out and be done with it. What are we having for dinner? Oh, it's too hot to cook. Is Scrapple all right? Scrapple? Sure. Scrapple for dinner. I like Scrapple, but... I can't imagine it as a main course for dinner. But Stanley says, sure. So either this is a regular thing with them, or once again, he's just a good guy who knows it's too hot to cook. Dorothy leaves, and we get a crossfade to the apartment building as Stanley comes home. There's a stairway leading up to the second floor. Stanley lives on the first floor, apartment 102. The Verbers live right above him in apartment 202. And there's a payphone in the hall across from Stanley's apartment that serves as the phone for everybody who lives in the building. The odd thing is, nobody else seems to live in the building except Stanley and Dorothy and the Verbers. We never see anyone else, even though things happen sometimes out in the hallway, like the phone ringing. No one ever pokes their head out. No one's curious about what's going on. We can probably mark this down as saving money on extras. So Stanley heads towards his apartment, and the phone rings. That thing is a baby carriage, and Robert Stevens shows it to us large in the foreground as Stanley walks into it behind. It is parked right next to the phone, so if you aren't looking where you're going, you're going to walk right into it. The phone is for Mr. Verber, and Stanley calls up to him. But Mr. Verber doesn't come out of the apartment. Mrs. Verber does, and she comes down to answer the phone. While she's down, Stanley approaches the subject of the baby carriage. Miss Verber, I wish you'd do something about that baby buggy, man. I always keep crashing into it. I didn't have any place else to leave it. I can't be dragging it upstairs all the time, can I? No, I suppose not. Maybe you can hang a red lantern on it. Again, it's Stanley being a good guy. She doesn't have any other place to put it. Okay, fine. But she'll find some other place to put it eventually. Mrs. Verber picks up the telephone handset, but she doesn't speak into the phone right away. She looks at Stanley and makes sure that he goes into his apartment before she begins speaking. We actually never hear her speak at all because the camera moves inside with Stanley. It gives us a low-angle shot of Stanley entering his apartment, and then it follows him so that his electric fan is large in the foreground. He's going to sit in his chair and turn that on. little emphasis that it's hot, and tempers can flare up when it's hot. We end up with a nice shot of the fan in the foreground, Stanley knocked out in his chair in the midground, and Dorothy behind in the kitchen in the background. And Dorothy's curious about the phone call. You answer the phone? Yeah. What's for Verba? Oh. I guess he's not home yet. He came home half an hour ago. Huh? Well, Mrs. Verba took the call. Who called him? Oh, the president, I guess. 
Don't be funny. Was it a man or a woman? As a matter of fact, it was a woman. Why? That's why. Boy, remind me never to have my lady friends phone me here. The fight starts upstairs. We hear Verber's voice, but actually we never see him again. So with the fight going on upstairs, Dorothy goes into the bathroom. She has a stool she puts in the bathtub to reach the window leading out to an air shaft so she can eavesdrop on the fight upstairs, something she clearly does a lot. We get a high-angle shot looking down on Dorothy, then a low-angle shot looking up at the Verber's windows where we only see the windows, then back down to Dorothy again as she continues to eavesdrop on the argument. When she returns to Stanley, Stanley is in the kitchen eating dinner. The last time we saw him, he was practically asleep in his chair as Dorothy gave him a glass of something to drink. Did she serve dinner? Did Stanley go in and serve himself? Anyway, Dorothy is very concerned about what's going on upstairs. Stanley, it's getting worse. And your dinner's getting cold. He threatened her. I tell you, this is serious. What am I supposed to do about it, sweetie? I don't know. Come and listen. I can hear all I want right here. Did you hear that? He's beating her. I told you, some people like to fight. Three Chanel kiss and make up. Stanley, he's killing her. She'll get in a few of her own in a minute. Do you hear anything? Huh? That scene ends with a slow fade to black. Very nicely done by both Kathleen McGuire and Joe Mantell as they look at each other in the silence. And the silence is devastating after all the noise that's been going on upstairs. should also mention that while Stanley seems to be a nice guy, he says some pretty awful things, such as, I told you some people like to fight. And, She'll get in a few of her own in a minute. And while Dorothy seems to care, he doesn't seem to care. Now, is this just the mores of 1955? Or is Stanley ultimately not such a nice guy after all? And he's mainly just concerned about keeping a good profile in the neighborhood for his business. The fade to black was probably to a commercial. And when we come back, we're back in the grocery with Stanley selling something to Mrs. Santini. The camera follows him as he turns to dust a shelf behind the cash register. We only see him as Mrs. Verber says, Mr. Crane. I'd like some candy, please. It surprises both Stanley and us because, let's face it, we and Stanley think that Mr. Verber has killed her. She now has a Band-Aid on her cheek covering the bruise. The camera moves around to show Mrs. Verber from behind the counter. Behind her, we see Harold and a customer. They finish their transaction and leave, Harold exiting stage right, the customer exiting stage left in a nice compositional shot, clearing the way for Stanley and Mrs. Verber. Stanley asks Mrs. Verber if she would like to have the chocolate-covered cherries that Mr. Verber always bought for her, and she hesitates before saying, Yeah, it'll be fine. Stanley asks if there's anything else that she'd like, and there is. Yeah, I need something to pack the kids' toys in. If you don't want that cart, then I'll just take it along. Well, you're welcome to it. It's kind of awkward. Maybe I'd better carry it over for you, huh? I can manage it, I'm sure. Well, there's no trouble at all. I'm going home for lunch in just a minute. I'll be glad to take it right up. Well, it's uh, very nice of you. 
There's a high-angle shot from the top of the stairs as Stanley, back at his apartment, brings the carton to Mrs. Verber. She tells him to leave it outside, that she's taken a bath. The phone rings just once, and Dorothy answers it. The phone is for Mrs. Verber. She opens the door with the chain on, peeks out, and says she can't answer. When Stanley leaves, the camera pans down to the carton. Mrs. Verber opens the door. We only see her arm as she brings the carton in. It's not long before Stanley finds out from Dorothy who called. Stanley. Yes, sweetie. Stanley. Who do you suppose that was? It was Verber's boss. Oh, lunch ready? Verber didn't go to work today. And he, he isn't home. There hasn't been a sign of him all morning. Seriously, Dorothy, you ought to keep your head out of that air shaft. Stanley, for heaven's sake. I tell you, something's happened. There hasn't been a peep out of him since that fight last night. Oh, yes. That's when he killed his wife. I don't know who killed whom. Why, this hot weather's making you lightheaded. Then where is he? He went to Coney Island. Or maybe he went to the ball game. Or he could have gotten a new job and went to see his mother. There's a hundred ordinary, everyday explanations for it. I hope so. Your lunch is ready. So what were you doing up there? Oh, Mrs. Verber wanted a large carton, so I brought it over a for carton. her. A carton? How large? Oh, one of those very big ones. She said she wanted to pack some of the children's toys. Carton that large would hold a lot of toys. Now they're both thinking what we're thinking as the scene fades to black again. It's later in the evening, and Dorothy is watching TV while Stanley is dozing in his chair. The doorbell rings. Dorothy asks Stanley to answer the door, even though he's the one who's sleeping. But accommodating as ever, Stanley says, He's also accommodating when the guy at the door, in what seems to be late at night, informs him, I bought a health. I got to inspect the apartment. Okay, come in. Well, he sure worked some funny hours. Yeah, it's a long day. But this is the last apartment. I don't do it now. I got to come all the way back here tomorrow. Okay, go ahead. The apparent Board of Health man looks in the kitchen, then the bathroom, then out the window into the garbage-strewn air shaft. The light of his flashlight moves around in the garbage in the same way it's going to move around in the basement later on. He closes the bathroom door so that Dorothy won't hear, and then he asks Stanley a question. What do you mean about Verber being away? Just hadn't been around, that's all. For how long? Can I see your health inspector's permit? I didn't want to upset your wife. Sergeant Haller on homicide. Oh, detective, that's what I thought. Yeah, that board of health routine worked with Mrs. Verber. At least, I think it did. Is it about Verber? Yeah. We got a phone call that his wife had knocked him off. Anonymous, I suppose. Mm, they always are. But still, we got to investigate. Did you find anything up there? Nah, not a thing. How long has it been since you saw him? Oh, three days. That's the last time we heard them, anyway. Oh, they fight a lot, huh? Yeah, he was a woman chaser. Boy, they had a real brawl that last night. My wife was sure they were killing each other. Well, that's possible, of course. Still, what could she have done with a body? She doesn't drive a car, she says. That's right. You can't drag a body out through the streets without somebody noticing it. That carton. Hmm? What carton? What are you talking about? I brought it over to it myself. A large carton. She said she wanted to pack some children's toys. Now, it is a little odd that the policeman, 
Sergeant Halloran, takes Stanley into his confidence so quickly. Usually when that happens in fiction, it means that Stanley will turn out to be the killer. But let's find out what happens here. The two men think they're talking in confidence, but Dorothy is right outside the door. She then hears the door to Mrs. Verber's apartment close, and she looks out her door and sees Mrs. Verber exiting out the front door of the apartment building. When the two men come out of the bathroom, Dorothy tells them that Mrs. Verber just left, and the two men go upstairs with that high-angle shot again to Mrs. Verber's apartment. Halloran has skeleton keys, and he gets in pretty quickly. Now, Halloran feels like he's looked pretty much everywhere for a potential body, but Stanley points out right away that it could be behind the couch. The camera moves to a shot behind the couch where we see the carton is there. We see it before they do. Still, you wouldn't expect to find a corpse lying back on the sofa. No, you sure wouldn't. They pull the carton out from behind the sofa. It's closed up with two pieces of twine, which Halloran cuts with a pocket knife. I don't think they retie it. At least we don't see them retie it. So you would think that Mrs. Verber would figure out pretty quickly that someone has been in her apartment. They open the carton, and what do they find? What do you know? Toys. Yes, toys. Just as Mrs. Verber said. But then if she's killed Mr. Verber, where is his body? It's the next day back in Stanley's apartment, and all of a sudden Mrs. Verber has a first name. So does Mr. Verber, for that matter. They haven't used it the entire time. But now, as Dorothy is feeding Stanley what looks like just slop for lunch, she says, Amelia wouldn't let the cleaning woman in the apartment today. Aha, so Mrs. Verber's first name is Amelia. You still think he just walked out, don't you? Yep. Well, then he walked out on his job, too. I answered the telephone today. It was his boss. Ben Verber hasn't been to work all week. Is that so? Aha, so Mr. Verber's first name is Ben. And Amelia hasn't set foot out of that apartment since you and the detective were there. What's she doing up there? I wouldn't know about that. You can stop worrying about Verber, because he isn't dead. How do you know? Mrs. Klevatsky was in the story this morning. She told me he's staying with his parents, wherever they live. His parents live in Queens. Where did Mrs. Klevatsky get her information? I didn't ask her. From her daughter, probably. She and Berber are pretty friendly, it seems. I don't believe that. He wouldn't waste his time on that silly Glavatsky girl. Anyway, that's where he is. He hasn't been murdered. But Stanley, that What's isn't... Drop it, shall we? We've made enough trouble over nothing. Penny, I can't afford to get that kind of reputation. My business depends on the goodwill of this neighborhood. It's just mind our own business from now on, huh? But Dorothy does not mind her own business, and later she comes to Stanley's grocery store to tell him what she's discovered. Ben Verber is not at his mother's house in Queens. I just spoke to her. She said she hasn't seen or heard of Ben all week. You mean to say you phoned them? Of course I did. I told you that woman killed him. Honey, take it easy, sweetheart. Take it easy. His mother said that Amelia brought the children over there that day after that last quarrel, but that she didn't say a thing about Ben. So now we're really on a first-name basis with both Amelia and Ben. But at that moment, Mrs. Verber, Amelia, enters the store. She claims her husband is with his mother and the kids. And Stanley gets a look on his face with his eyes shifting a bit that shows us that he realizes that she's lying. And when she leaves... He calls Sergeant Halloran. The guy is missing, and maybe he is dead. But what did she do with the body? It's a lead pipe cinch that she didn't get it out of the building. And we know... Wait a minute. Okay. She couldn't get it out of the building. 
but she could get it out of the apartment. Is there a vacant apartment here? No, but there's a basement. Nobody ever uses it except to tend the furnace. It'd be safe until next fall. That's all right as far as it goes, but how could she get him down there? A corpse is a dead weight, if you'll excuse the expression. It isn't reasonable to suppose that she could drag a body down two the flights... elevator! That's it! It's so old and wheezy, nobody ever uses it much. Let's see if it still works. It does still work. And we get a camera shot behind Dorothy's shoulder as she spies on them. Now, even if the elevator is old and wheezy and nobody uses it much, you would think that Stanley would have remembered that a long time before. It's a minor quibble. Stanley and Halloran go down into the basement... Halloran turns on his flashlight, looks around all the junk down there. It's reminiscent, as I said, of the moment when he shines the flashlight down into the garbage in the air shaft. They find a trunk, look inside it, nothing. Then Dorothy enters by the elevator, which is a big hint that she eavesdropped on the two men when they talked about the elevator, but nobody ever mentions it. Then Halloran notices something. What's that up there? What's up there is a MacGuffin. It's nothing at all. It's just something that Halloran can point at to get Stanley to walk in that direction. And once Stanley walks in that direction... Boy, I'm always falling over that... I've looked at it every day and never saw it. Because it wasn't there. How many times I went to answer the phone and crashed into that baby buggy. He's here. He was here all the time. So that seems to be our twist. The baby buggy that Stanley would see all the time, he stopped seeing and never noticed because Amelia used it to carry Ben's body down to the basement. It's a nice little twist. It explains how she could get the body down there, but how did she get him into the baby carriage? Well, we see the baby carriage, we don't see him. So how does he fit? I think that means she cut him up into smaller pieces. But we never see it, so it's one of those situations where your imagination conjures it up. And that works better than anything you'd see on screen. All right, so that's it, right? It's all over. It's a nice little twist. It's a great little conclusion. But then why is Mrs. Verber coming down the stairs? Why is there more? And come to think of it, what does the title mean? Guilty witness. Who's the witness here? And who's guilty? Mrs. Verber is guilty, right? Anyway, we get a nice little shot of her from behind the stairs, coming down the stairs, as she confronts Halloran, Stanley, and Dorothy. You said you were from the Board of Health. I was afraid of you, but I didn't know why. I know it's useless. They're all against me. You don't care about me. I'm the woman he married. Wasn't his fault? You'd never know he was a married man the way those women kept throwing themselves at him. They wouldn't leave him alone. He thought I didn't know. <laughs> a Glavatsky girl. All the rest of them. It wasn't so bad, really. We had our fights. Sometimes I think about getting a divorce. What happened that night? Now, as I said earlier, I had seen this episode long before, but I had completely forgotten it. 
and I didn't get the point of Amelia's speech here. I mean, it's all solved, right? We don't need her explanation. So I went from thinking, what a cool twist with the baby buggy, to thinking, why is it droning on like this? Here's why. He was packing his bag. He went into the bedroom and he started cramming everything into a suitcase. He never did know how to pack a bag properly. Where do you think you're going, I said. Out of the country, he said. South America, maybe. She's going with me. We're finished, you and me. I'm going to get a divorce. What about the kids, I said. What about him? He says, I can't afford to support them and her, too. He couldn't support his own kids. On account, he had to support her. That's... That's why I killed him. That wasn't his fault. It was yours. You're the one I should have killed. You. You, you were going to take him away from me. He was leaving me for... So now we know who our guilty witness is as Amelia attacks Dorothy and the camera pans over to Stanley looking stunned as he now knows who the guilty witness is too. This is the kind of show that makes you watch it again to see if you can pick up on all the hints, luxury that they didn't have in 1955. Then they had to wait for the rerun, which was on, according to Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, never. It was not rerun at any time during the regular run of the show. But now we can easily look back. So let's do that and see what we find. There's Mrs. Glavitsky's comment about her daughter right at the beginning. Oh, such girl. Which may mean nothing, or it may mean that her daughter is rather rambunctious. There's the way that Amelia responds to Dorothy when they meet each other in the store early on. Morning, Mrs. Verber. Mrs. Crane. It has that sort of rhythm of, I'm wise to you. And right after saying that, Amelia turns and gives Stanley a look, as if to see if he's wise to it, too. Stanley and Dorothy talk about whether the Verbers are fighting, and when Stanley goes to help Mrs. Glavetsky, Dorothy is left in the foreground, looking very thoughtful. This is clearly very important to her. Then she asks Stanley, Do you think he plays around? She already knows that Ben plays around with her. But to her, it's a serious relationship. She's going to leave Stanley for Ben. So what she's worried about is whether he plays around with anybody else. Is she just another one he plays around with? This is clearly a concern to the extent that after Stanley answers the phone that is for Verber, she asks... Who called him? Oh, the president, I guess. Don't be funny. Was it a man or a woman? When we first hear that line, we think she's just being a good neighbor. Now it seems pretty clear that it's a continuation of her worry as to whether Mr. Verber is playing around. The next day, what we now know is the day after the murder, Mrs. Verber comes into Stanley's shop and says, I'd like some candy, please. 
Stanley suggests... How about the chocolate-covered cherries Mr. Verber always buys for you? And then there's a pause. In fact, it's this pause before she says... Yeah, it'll be fine. Now, I may be reading too much into this, but it seems to me that that hesitation means that Mr. Verber has not been buying those candies for her, but for his girlfriend's. And the fact that she continues to buy them throughout the show indicates, I think, a form of revenge against him to finally enjoy the things he was getting for other women. Now, when Stanley brings the carton to Mrs. Verber and the phone rings while he's up by her door, Dorothy answers that very fast. Was she there already using the phone? Perhaps contacting the police anonymously? Or she's been hanging around the phone hoping for a phone call? This is the only moment, by the way, when we get to see the area around the phone when the baby carriage is not there. But we do get this one time, so they're playing fair with that. So when Sergeant Halloran shows up and decides to level with Stanley and tells him... phone call that his wife had knocked him off. Anonymous, I suppose. They always are, but still, we got to investigate. We've got a pretty good idea that it was Dorothy that has made that anonymous call. Later, when Dorothy continues her concerns, Stanley tells her... Lubetsky was in the store this morning. She told me he's staying with his parents, wherever they live. His parents live in Queens. Where did Mrs. Glavatsky get her information? I didn't ask her. From her daughter, probably. She and Berber are pretty friendly, it seems. I don't believe that. He wouldn't waste his time on that silly Glavatsky girl. Anyway, that's where he is. So, first of all, Dorothy knows where Berber's parents live. It's not necessarily unusual. But now that we're looking back on it, it seems like another clue. And also, she gets up in arms about the silly Glavatsky girl. Stanley tells her to mind her own business, but she doesn't. Ben Verber is not at his mother's house in Queens. I just spoke to her. She said she hasn't seen or heard of Ben all week. You mean to say you phoned them? Of course I did. I told you that woman killed him. Honey, take it easy, sweetheart. Take it easy. His mother said that Amelia brought the children over there that day after that last quarrel, but that she didn't say a thing about Ben. So Dorothy has called Verber's mother. She could have gotten the number out of the phone book, or maybe she knew it all along. And why would Verber's mother tell her that Amelia has brought the kids over to her, but she doesn't know anything about Ben, if Dorothy was a perfect stranger? So those are all things that stand out, at least to me, after I've watched the episode. Now, there are a few flaws. I think Sergeant Halloran gets far too chummy too quickly with Stanley. The elevator in the basement stuff is sprung on us at the end. That's something Stanley should have thought about long before. And then there's the fact that Dorothy seems too concerned that Ben has killed Amelia, or that Ben will kill Amelia. In the story, she couldn't care less. So let's look at the story. According to Jack Seabrook at Barebones E-Zine, the story was first published as Innocent Bystander in the spring 1949 issue of Shadow Mystery Magazine. The author is listed as Morris Hirschman, but his actual name is Morris Hersham, the change is possibly because people kept calling him Hirschman anyway. Just a guess on my part. Again, according to Jack Seabrook, Morris Hirschman was a very prolific author with a career that spanned over 60 years. He's written over 100 published short stories and over 70 novels using a slew of pen names such as Sam Victor, Jess Wilcox, Evelyn Bond, Arnold English, Norman Hunt, Lionel Webb, and Janet Templeton. This story was reprinted in 1954 in a Mystery Writers of America anthology entitled Butcher, Baker, Murder Maker, which is where I tracked it down. That's also where Hitchcock's producers found it. The book includes a short introduction to the story by Morris Hirschman, in which he writes in part, 
The chief character in this story isn't based on anybody living, subconscious, or dead, but he's a pharmacist by profession and shares that distinction with my father. My father, a quiet, friendly man who dislikes detective stories, owned a store in which I worked when I was attending high school. He was well-liked in the neighborhood and seldom lost his temper, because if he became irked, he might not be able to appreciate whatever preposterous incident would surely come up in a little while. And my father has a sense of humor. As a story background, the old place was hard to resist, and so, very sensibly, I stopped trying and wrote a story about it. So in the story, Stanley is a pharmacist. He's also the narrator. Now, as I said in the episode, Dorothy seems concerned that Mr. Verber is abusive, but here she snaps, I can't stand that woman. If I were married to Amelia Verber, I'd beat her up day and night. Stanley, as narrator, adds, my wife always takes the man's side in a family argument, which seems to be there to diffuse the early suspicion that Dorothy has it in for Amelia. The detective, Harrison, in the story, knows Stanley previously, so that makes a bit more sense in terms of him confiding with Stanley, something that the episode doesn't use. But the thing that the episode does well is it has the events take place over only a few days. Remember, it's summer, and it's hot. And even if the body is in a basement, it's going to start decomposing, and it's going to smell. In the story, the events take place over several weeks. Also in the story, Amelia uses the carton that Stanley gives her for Ben's body. The baby carriage angle is not there at all, which I think is too bad. Now, as for the final twist, the story achieves it by not telling us Stanley's wife's name. Here's how the story concludes. I'm going to her, he said, when I asked him what he was up to. We're finished, you and me. Where are you going, I said. Out of the country, tropics maybe. She'll come with me. What about the kids? Let them go to work or something. I don't know. I'm no millionaire. I can't support you and the kids and Dorothy. Dorothy, that was her name, Dorothy. He couldn't support his own children on account of he had to support her. I killed him. I couldn't do anything else. Large, fat tears rolled down her cheeks, but she didn't make a sound. Finally, she clenched and unclenched her fists and drew back her lips in a snarl. But I know who it was this time. I know for sure. I was chasing one of the boys up the stairs like I always do, and I saw the box of chocolates delivered. She isn't going to get away with it, I promise you. I'll kill her like I killed Ben. She stiffened and shrieked, her eyes glinting, her teeth bared, as she jerked away from Harrison, long fingernails outstretched, And before any of us could make a move, she was scratching, screaming, kicking, clawing at my wife. So that's a pretty good ending kicker. But I still like the episode better. Maybe because I saw the episode first. It gets a little awkward with the way Mrs. Verber has to tell her story at the end because we already know Dorothy's name. So it sounds like she's talking about Mrs. Glavetsky's daughter. But I'm willing to excuse that. And the story is missing the final shot of the episode where we see Stanley's face with the shock and the realization of what's been going on all along. Let's look at the players, starting with the one who gets top billing, an actress I thought pronounced her name as Judith Evelyn, but whom Boris Karloff pronounces Judith Evelyn. So I'm going to go with Boris's pronunciation. Judith Evelyn was either born Judith Evelyn Morris or just Evelyn Morris. I've seen both in different places. She plays Amelia Verber, and she was primarily a Broadway actress who appeared in such plays as The Shrike, Angel Street, 
The Rich Full Life, and Craig's Wife. All of these were later made into films, but she appeared in none of them. In television, she played Lady Macbeth in both Sure as Fate and Studio One, both in 1951. She's in five episodes of Suspense, in the Playhouse 90 adaptation of the novel Alas Babylon, and in the thriller episode What Beckoning Ghost, which is where I got the Boris Karloff pronunciation of her name. You can tell from this clip that she is an actress who can play very different characters very convincingly, as she's very different than Amelia Verber here. Eric, supposing I told you that I don't remember your Dr. Bartoli, would you think I was going out of my mind? Judith Evelyn also appeared in the films Giant, The Brothers Karamazov, and The Tingler, but she's probably best known for our purposes for playing Miss Lonely Hearts in Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window a film which, when you think about it, has a very similar story to this episode. Miss Lonely Heart. Well, at least that's something you'll never have to worry about. Oh? You can see my apartment from here all the way up on 63rd Street? Now, you may think that she has no lines as Miss Lonely Hearts, just as she has no lines as the deaf mute in The Tingler. But she actually does have a couple of lines right at the very end when she hooks up with the songwriter played by Ross Bagdasarian, also known as David Seville, who was the creator and the voices of Alvin and the Chipmunks. I hope it's going to be a hit. This is the first release. I'd love to hear it. I can't tell you what this music has meant to me. Before we move on from Judith Evelyn, I think I should mention one tragedy that occurred in her life. In 1939, she was traveling to Canada from the UK with her father aboard the Athenia, when it was torpedoed in the Irish Sea. There were only six survivors out of 85 on the ship. She was one of them, obviously, but her father was not. Judith Evelyn is in one other episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. We'll see her next in Martha Mason Movie Star, which is episode 34 of season two. She died in 1967 at either the age of 54, according to IMDb, or the age of 58, according to Wikipedia. Oh, and one other thing. There is a French novel by Sébastien Ortiz entitled Mademoiselle Coeur Solitaire, in which the main character is Miss Lonely Hearts, using many scenes of the movie, but from her point of view. Ortiz dedicated the book to Judith Evelyn. Kathleen McGuire, who plays Dorothy, was a student of Lee Strasberg at the Actor Studio, and as such appeared in an episode of the early TV program Actor Studio. She was mostly seen on the stage and in soap operas. She won an Obie Award for her role in Time of the Cuckoo, and she appears in the soap operas A Flame in the Wind, A World Apart, One Life to Live, and The Doctors. She's in three Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes altogether. Her next is The End of Indian Summer, episode 22 of season two. And Kathleen McGuire died in 1989 at the age of 63. Joe Mantell, billed as Joseph Mantell here, played Stanley Crane. His name was originally Mantle, one L at the end, but he changed it, adding the L, putting the accent on the second syllable. He had a long, varied career with many credits to his name. He played Giuseppe Zangara, the man who tried to assassinate Franklin Roosevelt 
and who accidentally shot and killed Chicago Mayor Anton Cernak instead in an episode of The Untouchables. He's in episodes of Suspense, Lights Out, The Inner Sanctum. He's in two well-known episodes of The Twilight Zone, Nervous Man in a $4 Room, which is another doppelganger story that I could have mentioned last time, in which a man has a conversation with himself in the mirror. You're not running out on me this time. <sighs> you talking to me? You talking to me? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure you are. Now, me in the mirror, we're having to talk. Of that you talking to me line... Joe Mantel's obituary in The Guardian suggests that perhaps Paul Schrader, the screenwriter of Taxi Driver, had seen the episode as a 14-year-old and repeated it unknowingly. The other Twilight Zone is Steel, where he plays alongside Lee Marvin as two men trying to keep their aging robot boxer in one piece. Fix it. Steel, I... Fix it. Steel, I can't. Look, you break it, now you fix it! Let go of me. Don't you understand? It's got to be fixed. It's got to be a new spring. Then get one. They don't have them here. Don't you understand? They don't make them anymore. Something all of us who try to hang on to old technology can identify with. He also appeared in an episode of Rod Serling's Western, The Loner. And he's in comedies. He had the recurring role of Ernie Briggs in the early 1960s comedy Pete and Gladys, starring Harry Morgan and Kara Williams, both of whom we'll eventually see in the Alfred Hitchcock series. <coughs> I thought you spent the whole war clerking in a PX. <laughs> What's this New Guinea bit? All right, it was New Jersey. <laughs> this whole story you told Gladys was a big fib. Well, Ernie, if you spent the whole war clerking in a PX, would you admit it to Peggy? <laughs> oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Every man wants to be a hero to his wife. Right. He's also in All in the Family, Maud, and Barney Miller. Officer Raymond Wayman, New York City Police Department, legal department. I'm a cop and a lawyer. Oh, I like you already. <laughs> Going back to Hitchcock, he's in The Birds as the traveling salesman at the diner. Goats are scavengers anyway, most birds are. Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. Unfortunately, he's the one that gets wiped off the face of the earth as he lights a cigarette while there's gasoline flowing down towards his car, blowing himself up. When Joe Mantel died in 2010 at the age of 94, the Guardian obituary said that his career could be said to have existed between two memorable lines of dialogue in two movies almost 20 years apart. Neither are great lines in themselves, but the way Mantell delivers them and their importance as part of the ethos of the two contrasting films allowed them entry into the lexicon of popular culture. The first one was from Marty in 1955. Joe Mantell played Marty's friend Angie, Actually, he played Angie twice. As the Guardian obituary puts it, he was fortunate that television was looking for actors who looked like, quote, real people, unquote. This landed him the role of Angie in the 1953 television version of Marty with Rod Steiger in the title role. When Marty was made into a feature film with the same director, Delbert Mann, Mantell was one of the few to be retained from the original cast. And in the film, of course, he played opposite Ernest Borgnine. So what was the memorable line he had from Marty? What do you feel like doing tonight? I don't know, Ange. 
What do you feel like doing? Well, we ought to do something at Saturday night. I don't want to go bowling like last Saturday. Hey, how about calling up that big girl we picked up in the movies about a month ago up in the Archeo Chester? Which one was that? You know, that big girl that was sitting in front of us with the skinny friend? Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember, her name was Mary Feeney. We took him home all the way out in Brooklyn? Yeah. What do you say? Think we ought to give him a call? I'll take the skinny one. Yeah, she maybe got a date already, uh, Ange. So we give him a ring. What can we lose? No, I didn't like her. I don't feel like calling her. Oh, well, what do you feel like doing tonight? I don't know, Ange. What do you feel like doing? The Guardian obituary says this riff was picked up by a generation. And then, in the 70s, he plays opposite Jack Nicholson as Jake's partner in Chinatown. And he's the one that gets to say, Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Again, according to the obituary in The Guardian, the original script by Robert Town did not conclude in Chinatown and ended on an upbeat note. But it was the director's, Roman Polanski's, alteration and Mantell's brief aside that makes the film so powerful and disturbing. We'll see Joe Mantell again in The Indestructible Mr. Weems, episode 37 of season two. Robert Simon, later known as Robert F. Simon, played Sergeant Halloran. He was an all-state high school basketball champion in the 1920s and a traveling salesman before he went into acting. IMDb says that he drifted into acting via the Cleveland Playhouse, hoping that this would cure his natural propensity for shyness. When he went to New York, he joined the actor's studio, where he became a lifetime member, and was on Broadway both as actor and stage manager for 10 years. Again, according to IMDb, he was even able to fulfill his original career goal of becoming a traveling salesman as understudy to Lee J. Cobb as Willie Loman in Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. And in fact, he succeeded Lee J. Cobb in the role. He had a rich career in television, one of his early roles was in an episode of Tales of Tomorrow, Past Tense, in which Boris Karloff plays a man who travels back to the past. He's in episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Custer. He's in three episodes of MASH as the crazy general Maynard M. Mitchell. He's one of the actors who plays J. Jonah Jameson in the 1970s live-action Spider-Man series. The other actor was David White, best known as Larry Tate in the TV series Bewitched, a series in which Robert F. Simon portrayed Darren's father. Well, maybe Aunt Claire's right. You are a witch after all, huh? I am. <laughs> but don't spread it around. 
<laughs> It'll be our secret. <laughs> in the anthology series, he's General Hart in the Outer Limits episode, The Zanti Misfits. And he's Harvey, the cautious partner to Dana Andrews' time traveler in the Twilight Zone episode, No Time Like the Past. What guarantee do you have that you'll reach the point that you want to? No guarantee at all. But if I fail, you simply mark off one man, one insignificant human, one frail, protesting member of the race. Let's put it this way. If I do fail, if I end up in hell or limbo or the cemetery, the responsibility is exclusively mine. You can rest easy on this fact. Feeling pretty secure now, are you, Paul? You sound funereal, Harvey. And I sound the way I feel. Robert Simon died in 1992, three days before his 84th birthday. Ed Kemmer, who played Ben Verber, was born Edward William Kemmerer. He was a fighter pilot during World War II and he was shot down over Germany, put in the POW camp. He escaped from the camp but was recaptured two weeks later. He becomes primarily a soap opera performer in the 60s and 70s. He has regular roles on the soap operas Clear Horizon, The Edge of Night, Somerset, Ryan's Hope, The Doctors, and As the World Turns. And he's in lots of westerns. But he was mainly known early on as Commander Buzz Corey in the radio series Space Patrol. When the series moved to television, he was Buzz Corey there as well. He also acted out the role of Prince Philip in live-action footage that was later given to the animators to study for Disney's film Sleeping Beauty. And, going back to the anthologies we love, he's the flight engineer in the Twilight Zone episode Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. I said I saw him pull that plate up. Mr. Wilson, please. All right, you saw him. But there are other people aboard. We mustn't alarm them. You mean you've seen him too? Of course we have. We don't want to frighten the passengers. You can understand that. Of course. Of I understand. Now, the thing we've got to remember, you can stop now. Bob. Sir. Get out of here. Mr. Wilson. I said you can stop. Honey, what is it? I won't say another word. I'll see us crash first. And another little tidbit about Ed Kemmer is that he delivered his youngest daughter himself when she was born in the back seat of a taxi cab. Ed Kemmer died in 2004 at the age of 83. Grazia Narciso plays Mrs. Santini. And she was born in Italy as Maria Grazia Vuolo. She appears in the films Three Coins in the Fountain and Young at Heart. But if you look at her IMDb page, it's filled with married women with Italian last names, probably stereotype Italian roles. Mrs. Sistina Mrs. Danietta, Mrs. Romano, Mrs. Mazzioli, Mrs. Salvatore, Mama Rosa, and Mama Coletti. She died in 1967 at the age of 73. Leola Wendorf played Mrs. Glavetsky. She was born in Warsaw, Poland, came over to America with her mother at the age of 11 to attend a sister's wedding, where she married at a very young age. She worked in a shop as a milliner and then developed an interest in Yiddish literature and Yiddish theater. 
After divorcing her first husband in 1931, she married actor Ruben Wendorf and began to act in Yiddish theater with him. The role that she is probably best known for outside of Yiddish theater is Mrs. Shiva in the original Little Shop of Horrors. Ah, good morning, Mrs. Shiva. How's things today? Oh, the same as usual, Mr. Mushnik. My sister's nephew, Stanley, died in Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, what happened? He got blown up. Who knows how? That's nice. Well, you would like, maybe, as usual, some flowers for the funeral. Leola Wendorf has one other appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. She's in Shopping for Death, episode 18. And she died in 1966 at the age of 71. So that's your cast and their work combined with the direction by Robert Stevens and the teleplay writing by Robert C. Dennis and the short story by Morris Hirschman result in a very satisfying episode, I think, particularly because it hits you with two twists. But now the question is, is it more than the two twists? The Pie Lady at pieladyanthology.wordpress.com has this comment. The only thing I really wonder about is, if Ben Verber hit Amelia, why would Dorothy even give him the time of day? I think it would have made more sense to not have Ben Verber be abusive. It's one thing to have an affair. It's another to have an affair with a man who is known to hit women. Dorothy seems more sensible than that. And Verber wasn't so amazingly handsome she would have been blind to his ways. So that does bring up a question. Would a woman be willing to cheat with a man who beats his wife and think that he would never do that to her. And is nice guy Stanley the sort of man that a woman would leave for a man who beats his wife? And speaking of that, after seeing a bruise and listening to violent fights above them, would a couple in 1955 or today sit around and do nothing? Well, I think the answer to all of these questions is yes, because people are people, And there's all sorts of different kinds of people. And some things that may seem heartless or crazy to us can end up justified and rationalized by some people when they want things to go a certain way. Stanley justifies letting the fights go on above him because he doesn't want to jeopardize his clientele at his grocery store. And I'm sure Dorothy has her own reasons for thinking that Ben may beat Amelia but will not beat her. But what is this story saying? Maybe it's saying be happy with what you have because you may end up setting up a chain of events that makes you lose everything, as Dorothy loses everything. Or maybe it's saying you need to spend a little less time worrying about your business and what your customers might think and more time paying attention to the loved ones around you or else you might lose everything. In the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, Martin Graham's Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom quote Morris Hirschman, and he says, My story appeared in an anthology done by the Mystery Writers of America, and I remember Shamley Productions got in touch with them for my address. I did watch the initial telecast, and I don't feel that the changes they made did any harm to the story. I watched the show with a dozen friends, and Hitchcock's postscript caused some comment at my expense. His postscript should have been thought twice, before putting on the air. So let's listen to that postscript and see if we agree. Well, that was a touching ending. Of course, none of the story really happened. It was all made up, just a tissue of lies out of some writer's head. 
For the benefit of those of you who prefer truth to fiction, we shall now present some. Here, before I return, are some unadorned facts presented honestly and candidly and with impartiality and objectivity. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, Bewitched, Seasons 1 and 2, The Twilight Zone, Seasons 2, 4, and 5, and the films Marty, The Birds, Rear Window, Chinatown, and Little Shop of Horrors are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Tales of Tomorrow episode Past Tense, the Thriller episode What Beckoning Ghost, and the Pete and Gladys episode are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. You can also leave me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear from you either way. Before we go, I wanted to read this blurb that I found on Amazon touting season one of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Series of unrelated short stories covering elements of crime, horror, drama, and comedy about people of different backgrounds committing murders, suicides, thefts, and other sorts of crime caused by certain motivations perceived or not, which just about covers it all, I guess. So how'd we do on time? Looks like we did pretty darn well, but we're still just over an hour. I'll see if I can do better next time with episode 12, Santa Claus and the 10th Avenue Kid, starring Barry Fitzgerald. You know, truth may be stranger than fiction after all, but tune in again next week when we have a real whopper to tell you. Good night.